Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 9th of March. Results season may be starting to die down just a little, but there's been plenty of other drama in the market this week for us to get our teeth into, which we'll be doing shortly. First, our lineup. Uh, joining me in the studio today, Hermione Taylor. Hello, thanks for having me. Hermione, you're going to be looking ahead to next week's budget later on in the show. Uh, it's often bad news when you're on the podcast, but I think we're all quite hopeful that this budget will go a little better than the last one. So fingers crossed. Also with us is Mike Fahey, who'll be talking about our cover story this week, how to spot M&A winners. Mike? How are you, Dan? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Have you recovered yet from your football team's humiliating 7-0 defeat on the uh, weekend? Do we have to mention this? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I feel for you, but we can... Uh, uh, well, we won't discuss that later on, but we'll be discussing the cover story later on. I'll leave it there for now. Uh, but we're going to start today with a topic we can't really avoid, which is the state of the UK market in general. There's been a lot of noise over the past seven days about the future of the London market, sparked, of course, by the news that SoftBank-owned Arm is going to list in the US, not over here. Buildings Materials Group, CRH, is going to shift its primary listing across, across the pond. And the fact that Shell had considered but ultimately rejected doing the same. Uh, there are other companies, too, which we can get to in a minute. Joining us to discuss whether these are winds of change or a storm in a teacup are Mark Robinson and Alex Newman. Hi, both. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. Uh, Alex, why don't we start with you? Um, maybe we look at the, the catalyst for some of these shifts and we can get into that as well. Uh, is this the pull of the US? Is it more to do with the UK market's flaws? Is it a bit of both? What, what's your kind of take on these these stories all springing up at the moment? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we can take them on case-by-case basis, um, the companies you've mentioned there, um, and we need to consider the context. I, I suppose taking a step back, trying to understand why this has become such a powerful narrative, I suppose, in the financial media and elsewhere, um, is, I think there's understandable and growing angst, um, not only in this country, but um, probably in the minds of people who think about investing in it, about the state of industrial policy and political leadership and sort of what sort of economic direction this provides for, for investment. Um, you know, it's not a revelation to say sentiment is poor, you know, vis-a-vis the UK economy, even if the stock market is, um, has been doing a bit better than others uh, um, in, in the past year or so. Um, so I guess when you have a string of large companies appearing to overlook the country, it, it sort of feeds into the narrative, even if I, th- I think when you take them ter- you know, in turn, the decisions of these companies actually says more about their own strategies, um, outlook or ownership than than the UK economy. But I, I suppose it's kind of a it, it, that they've they've become the kind of lightning rod for a, a bigger uh, subject of which I think there is considerable angst. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We can maybe sort of discuss some of those companies in turn. Why don't we start with CRH? Because the other two, I mean, Arm, it always seemed like quite a long shot. It was going to list back in the UK. There was some lobbying, but they seem to be fighting a losing battle for a while, uh, which does speak to you know the the attraction of the US markets for tech companies in particular, which we can come back to. Shell, of course, you know, it was was lumped in, but it is staying in the in the UK for now. So it's not a case of a a company leaving, but CRH is a bit is a bit different. Uh, getting an increasing proportion of its revenue and even more of its profits from the US, uh, and there are potentially you know other factors at play as well in terms of US policy making it more attractive for it to list over there. Yeah. Oh, Mark, sorry, I, I could hear your your 
your breath inhalation. <laughs> My breath. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say, but what Dan alluded to then is is uh, spot on. Really, we've got a situation in the U.S. now that Joe Biden has finally managed to get various infrastructure spending plans through. Donald Trump uh, attempted to do this, but never actually made it through Congress. All of the, the, the main bill that uh, CRH would be interested in uh, went through at the end of uh, 2021. And uh, it's taken a little while for those um, funds to go out towards the states and into large federal projects as well. But looking at their results the other day, you can tell that's exactly what's uh, happening there at the moment. And it's not difficult to understand the move, given the fact that they uh, already generate the lion's shares of sales through the United States. And um, the go- growth prospects are you know, certainly over there too. And um, Alex's point as well, when you look at these companies individually, it's not difficult to sort of uh, plot the reasons why they've uh, moved to uh, the US capital market is, is uh, preferable really. Um, I, I had a look at, uh, I, I spoke to uh, Dan yesterday about this, but Hills and Smith is another um, uh, interesting company as well, uh, because, uh, you know, all of their, their sort of potential growth down, down the line there is linked to the US as well, and why they haven't, um, why, you know, why they haven't sort of uh, is, is yet decide to go on the road of Ferguson and CRH, you could see at some point in the future why they, they might actually uh, consider it too. There is this, this you know, buy American aspect to the, the uh, US acts as well, isn't there, which might be encouraging companies further, you know, i.e. it's implicit in some cases, explicit in others, but, you know, very much saying we want American manufacturing and American companies to be benefiting from these provisions, these, these subsidies. Yeah, I mean, the because um, the, the, effectively that's what they are. The, the, the sort of largest uh, subsidies we've seen possibly in in decades, really. And I'm not quite even sure how this would um, how this sort of plays out under um, WTO rules. I know there's obviously there's a bit of a, a frisson between the European Union and the US at the moment. But whether this has any impact on uh, listing volumes in London. Uh, remains to be seen. We should say it's not just a UK uh, suffering, if you will, as well. You know, Linda, the, the, which was the biggest uh, listed company in Germany, the natural gas company, has also uh, just completed its move across to uh, well, to its uh, to make its US listing its primary listing uh, the last few days too. So, so these these attractions to the US market, you know, the the uh, the money on offer, not just from governments and subsidies, but also from you know deep capital markets are clearly attracting a lot of different companies. You look at Flutter, for instance, as well. I mean, that was that reverts back to uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, looking at uh, the online gambling industry over there and changes there. And they're seeing all that growth potential in the US now just because of uh, uh, the change in legislation. I mean, what, one point that worth, uh, that's worth e- examining as well is what's happened uh, to the London market over the last... 20 years or, or part of the problem is linked to the way that uh, pension funds uh, invest over here now as well because uh, there's been uh, there was some comment in the media this week and a comparison I saw that uh, 
at the turn of the millennium, about 40% of shares uh, on the London exchange were owned by uh, pension funds. That's, that's sort of collapsed completely now. It's down to about 4%. And only about a quarter of the holdings of the, the UK pension, but the remaining UK pension funds are in equities as well, uh, compared to a, a much higher proportion in the US, which is a sort of a structural uh, problem that... Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure how the Treasury would 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 address that. I mean, it's the the reason it came again. It was on the back of legislation trying to um, make sure that uh, the funds over here uh, was had sufficient liquidity. Now, um, maybe down the line, you know, with with uh, with the possibility of further liberalisation in and uh, in, in financial markets over here, we might see a change, but. It's not easy to reverse that overnight. Mm. I, I think, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion this week about, yes, what we could do to get that pension money back. But I think a lot of that ship has sailed insofar as, yes, there are accounting changes. You, you can't necessarily just change them back. But even if you could, you think of those, you know, defined benefit schemes. The goal for a lot of them nowadays is to, you know, shift those liabilities off company balance sheets, off the pension scheme balance sheet entirely to insurers. And that means de-risking. And a lot of them are quite close to actually succeeding in getting those um, pension funds bought out because of the rising gilt yields recently. So if anything, they're going to be de-risking further and it's going to be very hard to, to shift that in the short term. Obviously, you look ahead to the, the era of defined contribution pensions being the, the majority of the marketplace, which we're still quite a few years away from. But, but you know, there are maybe some things we could do there in terms of making sure default funds for for people joining those schemes at the start of their careers are suitably equity focused, uh, things like that. But uh, I think in terms of quicker fixes, I mean, the government has been uh, looking at various things over the years. The Hill Review two years ago, not much has changed since then. And obviously, we now have the Edinburgh reforms, as they're called, uh, in terms of some post-Brexit changes to, to the UK market. So perhaps we can see some more tweaks there. But I mean, we should maybe end this segment by saying, you know, there are there are still, of course, many strengths to the UK market. And, you know, if you want to say the old world style of the FTSE 100, the company's there, uh, as we've seen over the past year in terms of share price performance, but but also in terms of the resilience, perhaps, of those companies and uh, the strengths they, they offer in difficult times. Yeah, there is a point as well there. And I, I don't know how you can sort of... Uh justify this empirically but the the feeling is is that uh, investors this side of the pond are a little bit more risk averse as well and that explains well partly explains the the rise of uh, uh, the tech segment over in the US i mean there's other, obviously other reasons for it as well but the mere fact that US invest investors both institutional uh, and retail are more willing to back uh, uh, risk assets than they are in the UK. It's probably the fault of the Investors Chronicle, really, when you think about it. Famously risk-averse. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, there are two sides to all of these stories. And we were discussing just before we came on air the the, uh, the case of One Disco, which earlier in the week was being held up as a an example of why the UK can't keep its uh, high-profile tech companies because they were looking at a US listing too. And now today with the announcement of possible fraud there that they're being held up as a sign of why things are all wrong with the UK market. So, you know, it, it has to be one or the other, but maybe the answer is somewhere in between. But uh, I was going to just add on, add on that point. I mean, you know, we, we did run a piece also on, on one disco, you know, the US li listing consideration, um, which sort of concluded that 
adds further weight to the argument that UK investors don't value technology businesses. And sort of just to jump back to what Mark was saying there, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd buy that argument, the argument that the price of protecting valuable intellectual property or growth businesses is to sort of value them at nosebleed levels, lest they be taken over on the cheap. I mean, because there's it doesn't really make sense to me. Like the, there has to be an investor incentive to balance risk and reward and markets can be very irrational but it's not apparent to me that you know london market just idly dismisses innovative ideas or new industries because they're new whereas the us embraces them i think you know we just have to wake up to the the reality that the us has a natural advantage of embracing what works because it's so much bigger and able to take risks as well as the you know all the other questions about liquidity of its markets and 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 so forth there's just this you know this is scale this advantage the uk has which we needn't kick ourselves for all the time because it is there and there are other ways you know we can sort of maximize some of the advantages um you know but that that you know that does come down to politics which I mean, we, we shouldn't forget as well the aberrations brought about by the by the low interest rate environment or the pro- prolonged low rate interest rate environment as well because that uh enabled more um a, a greater hand for private equity in the market as well and it reduced the the incentive of uh raising money on capital markets too and we've only just gotten over that really so longer term you know eh, longer term things can change we we hope so anyway i mean london has obviously got um great historical advantages as well given that there's a sort of an ecosystem uh an in-place ecosystem that backs up publicly listed companies in this country and and relatively high rates of um uh sound corporate governance as well you can always well uh, <laughs> one disco notwithstanding uh in relative terms london is still seen as a safe pair of hands and i would the, the only fear with the the edinburgh reforms is if um the government decides to uh, chuck the uh metaphorical baby out with the bathwater too i mean it would be a shame if it became so liberal that uh london would, would somehow see some of its historical advantages dissipate well on the subject of government policy we're going to turn to our next segment now with hamani to discuss next week's budget i dare say all of these issues won't be resolved or possibly even touched on then but uh um before we get into what kind of thing we can expect uh let's talk about how the the context of this budget has changed quite dramatically uh, in the space of a few weeks, really, uh, or certainly in terms of how it's being presented, because the black hole, which was being spoken about at the end of last year, has miraculously converted into a windfall, or, or so uh, some would have it. Yeah, it certainly it certainly sounds like it. So we've seen all these headlines talking about a fiscal black hole, as you say, turning into a £30 billion windfall. Um, I think the key thing to note here is that these sums of money are not as concrete as they sound. So a black hole or a windfall only really emerges when you compare where we are, so what the government finance position is, to forecasts and the Office for Budget Responsibilities or the, the OBR's forecasts in particular. So this £30 billion windfall has come about because the government borrowed £30 billion less than the OBR expected over the past 10 months. I think it's worth pointing out that even though it was less than expected, the government still borrowed a lot. So they borrowed £117 billion in total, which was actually £7 billion more than it did over the same period last year. Um, The reason that 
the government borrowed less than expected was partly because the public finance position was a bit better than expected because tax receipts held up well, um, partly because spending on subsidies, particularly energy price support, was lower than expected. And then some of it was due to some very kind of pedantic data revisions and changes to how the data was collected as well. And some double counting in one in one case. <laughs> yes. uh, nonetheless, you know, the... The borrowing figures, you know, are still there, but, you know, the government's always borrow and it does raise the question in some quarters of whether this shift has given uh, Jeremy Hunt room to make more giveaways next week. But maybe it's not, once again, it's not quite so simple as that. Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to give a very complicated answer again. So it's good that things are best than expected, and that's probably given Hunt a bit of breathing space. Um, but I'm sure listeners will remember that Hunt introduced some fiscal rules back in the autumn statement that basically said that borrowing um, is limited as a percentage of GDP. Unfortunately, it looks as though UK growth is not going to be too good over the next few years, and economists are expecting the OBR to reduce its forecasts for potential GDP over the next few years. And this will make it very difficult for Hunt to meet these rules and do anything that comes with a long-term cost, so big giveaways do look unlikely. I think we've also got to consider the political context... So the turmoil triggered by the mini-budget is definitely still fresh in my mind and it's still fresh in markets' memories as well. And Hunt will be conscious that the bond market could be very kind of skittish if he tried to introduce any significant tax and spending plans. Um, He's probably being a bit strategic as well. So um, I think economists think that if he limits giveaways this month, he might find himself um, with a bit more scope to loosen things before the next election, which will probably be next year. Yeah, I'm having to restrain myself at this point from... Talking about the the wisdom of of debt to GDP targets, which mean we delay big infrastructure spending to spread out that cost over a few years, which surely must have a resultant effect on growth itself. I'm thinking of the HS2 thing today in particular. It seems a very strange decision in that context. there's There's a question, even aside from government policy, perhaps, though, about, you know, the framework for these forecasts, the OBR. This might sound a bit Trussian of me, perhaps, but... You know, when you can have such big shifts in the forecast that effectively are dictating policy, does that kind of call into question that framework, really, and how we use it and how we use it to define the country's position when things can change so quickly in such a short space of time. I think that's a, <clears throat> I think that's a brilliant point. I mean, I don't want to OBR bash too much. They did say in autumn that there was a huge degree of uncertainty accompanying their forecasts, but economic forecasts are really uncertain. There's a really good uh, quote from an economist saying that economic forecasting was invented to make astrology look good. So um, I think these forecasts are useful and they should inform policy. But as you say, there are some economists as well saying, well, because these forecasts fluctuate so much, should we really use them to drive policy? You know, should this be the main driver behind our policies? And like you say, if we focus too closely on kind of debt to GDP figures and rely on these medium term forecasts, do we then miss the opportunity to do some bigger, longer term projects that could actually boost our trend rate of growth? Mm. Well, in, in the short term, let's return to what we might see next week. Uh, A couple of points here. One, uh, you alluded to it earlier, but uh, energy support, there might be a bit of a shift there. I think we're probably all expecting that now. Uh, And also potentially some changes, maybe a bit less likely, but we'll see what happens next week, but to pensions and lifetime allowances, things like that. Yeah, so um, I think it it probably looks as though there is going to be some continued energy price support. Um, The government has got a bit of breathing space here because falling energy prices mean that what they've spent already is much less than expected. Um, If they did keep the energy price guarantee kind of um, average cap at £2,500, that would probably cost about £5 billion. Um, I think um, economists think that that probably looks quite likely. 
Um, and then another focus is um, we know that Jeremy Hunt's really keen to look at how we could encourage people back into the workforce. So we've got quite low unemployment in the UK at the moment, but we've got a huge problem with inactivity, which is people who aren't working, who aren't looking for work. Um, and about half of the um, the increase in inactivity has been driven by people who are between 50 and 64, so kind of who've retired early. So I think one candidate to try and tackle that could be an increase in the lifetime allowance or even um, maybe some changes to the annual amount that people can contribute to their pensions as well. Whether this will work is another matter. Um, there is some research suggesting that some of this um, kind of dropping out of the labour force is actually driven by health concerns and uh, people being long-term sick. But um, I think that trying to encourage people who've taken early retirement back into the labour market could be a focus of the, um, of the spring budget. Well, we'll find out next Wednesday as usual. Yes, watch maybe, this space. Maybe report back next week, depending on how dramatic this uh, this budget proves. Hopefully not not quite so much, as I said. Indeed. Uh, Mike, we'll bring you in now for the final segment for our cover story this week, as discussed, which is about M&A, which often gets a bad rep, not, for, uh, not unjustifiably. Yep. But we're looking at the kind of companies who, A, are actually extremely acquisitive, but B... Are, are so for good reasons in so far as they've managed to show that it can work if you do it in a programmatic, systematic way. The key word there is programmatic as well. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, M&A does have a bad rap. Um, there are study after study uh, pointing out the amount of shareholder value that's typically destroyed with M&A activity. And over the years, that's, you know, you've anything from 50 to 75% has been the kind of uh, guidelines between which people think takeovers don't deliver the returns that they set out to do for various reasons. But the, um, the there was quite an interesting study by McKinsey in 2021, which um, highlighted these uh, companies that, as you said, do programmatic M&A, which they described as companies doing uh, two or more deals a year and typically of deals of smaller sizes as well, so not the great big moonshots where somebody may be taking over a company that's at least as big as it, if not bigger. And some of the examples uh, come to mind that we talk to, the companies we talk to in the piece, companies we talk about, uh, the likes of uh, Barlow, Bunzel, uh, a couple of others as well, Halmer. Halmer, yep. Uh, Big Beast Trainer. Yeah, which are, you know, classic examples of these kind of businesses making a lot of acquisitions over, uh, you know, consistently for several years. Uh, are there specific sectors where the strategy works best? Are they these sectors or does it depend on I think management? it does depend. I mean, one or two of the analysts that we spoke to as well um, say that the kind of buy and build model, as it's sometimes described, works better in regulated sectors. So, somewhere where you've got a lot of small businesses, somewhere a very fragmented market, and where it's not that easy really to just grab market share from from competitors. So things like, um, say, dentists or um, cosmetic surgeons or areas where there's some sort of pharmacies where there's some sort of regulatory barrier, it works quite well in those. Um, it's obviously an area where... Um, in that sphere where private equity has been particularly active as well over the past few years. And private equity has some advantages over public markets in terms of the size of checks they can write, the fact that they can write checks instantly, they don't have to go to shareholders to 
to maybe tap them for additional capital um, and also that they know um, or that they can they know pretty much what a public sector competitor is likely to pay and could, could quite often go above that. To return to the public companies for a minute, how do they how do they assess the value of these deals? How do they judge whether they've been a success? What kind of metrics do they typically look for? In some ways, quite similar to the metrics investors would look for when looking to make their own investments. Yeah, of course. Um, and it, again, this does differ sector by sector, and there is no kind of there's no one unifying model. Um, but there are some pretty clear guidelines and some pretty clear uh, methods of execution as well. So um, typically, if you're looking for a business that's going to offer some level of return, then paying, you, it, it means there's a limit to what you can pay. And so Begby's trainers, for instance, were talking about uh, typical um, purchase prices of between five and eight times uh, earnings. Marlowe were talking about anything between four at the lower end to 11 for slightly racier software firms. They're in the business of uh, compliance, health and safety compliance, et cetera, but are increasingly moving into software. And clearly the higher gross margins in software means they kind of attract more of a premium. Yeah, and there are some other details we go into in the piece, so look out for that if you're if you're interested in terms of things like return on invested capital and what have you. But from from the point of view of the shareholder, while these metrics are all things which uh, most investors will be familiar with, when they're looking at companies making deals, it can be hard for the outside investor to judge the success of these businesses because quite often or sometimes they're bought and then you know they're just on the balance sheet. They're not necessarily broken out uh, in years to come unless perhaps there's a goodwill write-off, something like that. So, so uh, goodwill is one way of finding out you know, how these deals are going maybe, and there are other things too that investors can look at in the reports and accounts. Yeah, so I was particularly keen on asking a couple of analysts about this, partly as well. If you have a business, say, the size of Bunzel, it's what, 10 billion turnover, doing 30 or so deals a year, how do you possibly keep track of that and how do you work out whether those deals are going to bring the returns that management said they would in the first place and sadly the answer is you can't um there's you know it's almost impossible for a company doing lots of small bolt-ons for for the sometimes they don't even have to declare that they've done the deal uh until the next trading update they may group three or four together so for a private investor looking to track that, it's really, really difficult. Um, there are a couple of things. Um, firstly, for larger deals, it is easier because if a deal is of a significant size, particularly if a company is going to look to the market to raise equity, then the chances are that that will be reported separately for at least a year or so afterwards. So there is a direct comparison there. But in general, especially if a company is using its own cash, then Really, the only way of doing it is to maybe kind of aggregate it. So generally, um, when a, an acquirer is buying, it'll say, it'll give details on the size of the company it's buying and the amount of earnings that company generates as kind of the basics. And it's just really to do a back-of-the-envelope calculation. So say if you've bought companies and you bought 10 of them and they are meant to bring in 
earnings, say, of 50 million, uh, and you look at the the amount of earnings the company itself is supposed to generate over a year, work out a growth rate, and then if if in the following year that figure is much lower, so say the company itself is expected to generate 100 million of earnings, add the two together, you should get near 150. If it's 75, then clearly something's gone badly wrong with at least one or maybe a few of the deals. Another way is also maybe to look at uh, the deferred consideration. So if uh, the the likes of Begbie's trainer say um, their preference is to give half the amount of consideration up front and pay half based on future earnings targets. So there will be an amount there of deferred that is expected to pay in future years. And if for whatever reason that amount changes in subsequent accounts, then you can tell, and usually if it changes, it's it's being reduced. And if it's being reduced, it's because maybe, the, well, the deals have missed the target. A final thought maybe is looking ahead or looking at the current environment, you know, we're in a higher rate environment now. Does that preclude more of these strategies from working? You know, quite often businesses, you know, when they need financing for these kind of deals, even if they're a series of small deals, are we less likely to see these kinds of strategies being successful in future or is it still going to be on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, definitely on a case-by-case basis and depends on the size of the firm doing the acquiring as well as the size of the firm that they are acquiring. So, for instance, uh, if you take a look at Marlow, they have done a lot of deals in the last financial year. I think they did about 20 deals and spent £320 million. And for the size of company that they are, that is quite big they had to do an equity raise but they also had to take on a bunch of additional capital which um now is looking i think in the last accounts their net debt figure trebled so now it's looking much more expensive for them to do that and the shares have come down quite a lot accordingly um but for somebody like bunzel who are much bigger are generally paying cash then there's an opportunity there as well as we've houses and higher mortgage rates there's always that point where uh an asset is worth so much and there's buyers and sellers wait until there's a repricing in the market and um bundles frank van zanten was kind of indicating that um he expects the valuations in the market to soften slightly over the next year or two particularly because uh that thing we started talking about of private equity writing big checks if they don't have the leverage and the capability to do that anymore then maybe valuations come down a bit and there's an opportunity for for cash buyers certainly thank you mike as i say that is the cover feature this week so if this has whetted your appetite do pick up a copy of the magazine there's plenty of company results and all the usual features in there as well to uh, get you interested but that brings us to the end of today's show so thank you to mike thank you to hermione thank you to mark and to alex we'll see you next time on another companies and market show 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.